Welcome to Heart to Start, celebrating 10 years of a community-based exercise program where we welcome everyone to join us, no matter your experience or your pace. The goal of Heart to Start is to use the power of community and movement to help people become their best, healthiest selves together. I'm Dr. James Beckerman. I'm a cardiologist with the Providence Heart Institute in Portland, Oregon, and I've coached the Heart to Start program since we began in 2012. In each episode, I'll be speaking with past participants who inspire all of us in the Heart to Start community and experts from medicine, sports, and performance who can help us better achieve our goals. Later in each episode, I'll be sharing some activity goals for the upcoming week. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram at Providence Health System. And before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or a treatment. Each week, we're focusing on an area of importance around the idea of consistent exercise. We connect with experts to provide you the best information to help get started, stick with it, and hopefully continue this habit beyond our 12 weeks together. If you ask any athlete in their respective sport what's the most important piece of equipment for their success, they may have varying responses, but somewhere in that short list will be their footwear. Your feet keep you moving. So that's why today's episode focuses on this very aspect in caring for an active body, proper footwear. We'll also touch on safety gear and dressing for the weather as we welcome Dave Harkin with the Portland Running Company. Dave and his team have been longtime supporters of our Heart to Start program by offering their expertise to help put our best foot forward when beginning this 12-week training. Hey, welcome to Heart to Start. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Um, so Dave, I've, I've known you for several years now uh, through your work at Portland Running Company and through your partnership with Heart to Start. But um, I've never really gotten the chance to learn about your own journey as a runner. You've been so helpful in helping our participants on their journeys, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about yours. Well, my journey started a long time ago. Uh, when I was a kid, like most kids, I played sports. My parents were originally from Ireland, so I played soccer, a lot of it. And as I grew up, I started to learn that I was pretty fast and not as skilled at soccer. And so I eventually migrated, maybe not purely out of choice, but mostly from getting cut from teams to a sport called cross country. Uh, and the coaches basically trick you into thinking it's an awesome sport where you get to run out in the forest. But uh, anyway, that's where I started in, uh, in middle school, uh, right around the age of 13, I started running cross country and then I kind of migrated to track mostly for the glory, mostly looking for a chance to travel somewhere. And I wasn't particularly, uh, amazing at running, but I was, I know I was pretty, um, good at not getting injured. And so as my friends did different things and got hurt playing different sports, I kind of 
siloed myself into running. Uh, that journey led to running in high school. Um, I competed in track and cross country in high school and eventually in college as well at the University of Oregon, go Ducks. And, um, you know, I was a walk-on at the University of Oregon. I, I ran my guts out just like everybody else in the world runs their guts out when they have a goal. And um, eventually as an adult, after running some road races, I started training for marathons. And I think that is where most of my experience has come from running. Uh, all the other experiences I had were mostly about how to compete and, and how to train hard. Uh, marathoning was a lot more about how to be, you know, honest with your body and uh, realistic with your goals. And as an adult, I then also became a coach and I coached a couple of different marathon training groups. And uh, most times those groups that I coached were 10 minute pace and above type groups. And so there's lots of things to talk about. Um, and I also learned a ton uh, from just sort of the everyday challenges uh, that that came along with just running and working and having a family. And that's the journey. The journey is still ongoing. I'm 51 years old now and I I still compete uh, regularly and still try to find goals and squeeze things out that make sense. And it's a great it's a great opportunity to uh, be fit and also challenge yourself. What's it like as somebody who has been running then for, let's say, almost 40 years? Um, how do you think of yourself as a runner today at age 51 compared to age 41 or 31 or even earlier than that? Who are you as a runner today? I always have this scenario in my head that I'm just running against those other people you just mentioned, Dave Harkin at 41 and Dave Harkin at 31. And I think at 51, I can, uh, I'm smarter. And so I can, I could probably race myself in these different phases, but I know one thing is for sure. Every step I take now has, uh, carries with it a little jeopardy that it didn't used to. When I was even 41, I felt very youthful and very much like I was going to run forever at the same pace. And, uh, every, every person I talked to and a lot of men I talked to as well, they're like, Oh, just wait till you hit 46 or wait till you hit 50 or in my case, 51. Uh, you start to just incur, you know, encounter things that you didn't before. So I think mostly now I still train hard. I have to be a little smarter about what I do. Um, I have to be a, a much more aware of what my body's telling me. Uh, it used to be, you know, kind of no pain, no gain. And now it's pain, you know, take a break and evaluate and see what kind of pain we're talking about. So as people uh, approach the the 50 mark, um, you hear a lot of people being more reflective. Uh, you start to even hear the word uh, wisdom whispered about a little bit. And um, it's true that people learn things and kind of understand themselves a little bit more as they grow older. For you, um, what is that wisdom, so to speak, uh, that you feel that you may be starting to access at this time in your running journey? Um, I think it's, wisdom is a great word for it. I think wisdom implies that you learn something and then you retain it. And uh, I think that's what you miss when you're a little bit younger. You might, you know, have an injury or have a challenge that is very difficult and you might even overcome it with some really uh, cool strategies and really appropriate strategies. But then the second that you get healthier, get over the challenge, you kind of forget what you did. And it's especially true when you're much younger in the 20s and 30s, you, things don't seem like they're ever going to happen again. And so you just do one thing and you solve a problem and then you move on. 
But at 51 now, I think each time something happens, I consider that this is something potentially significant, something that's going to happen again. I'm talking about injuries or, or things that are particularly challenging. And so I think the biggest difference is I have strategies now that I will probably employ for the rest of my life. And, um, and in some sort of realistic way on this planet, maybe existential way, I am counting now the second half of my you know, journey on the planet. And so I think being smarter and being um, uh, more measured and a little more realistic, I'm still a dreamer. I still think big and I still have a lot of goals I want to achieve. Uh, but I do spend a lot more time thinking like, all right, what do I have to do to stay healthy besides just go out the door and, and run some miles? Um, you said that you still have dreams. Um, what what kind of dreams are they? <laughs> um, I have a lot of my goals are now pace oriented. They used to be like, I want to place in a certain place at a race or I want to you know make a certain team or whatever. And now they're just all of the goals have to do with competing against myself. But I still have a marathon goal, uh, left it on the table a few years in London. I wanted to run two hours and 40 minutes for a marathon. And I ran two hours, 40 minutes in like, I don't know, eight seconds. And if you've ever been to a marathon, a lot of the straightaways at the finish are long. And so I could see the count kind of ticking away in the super slow motion. And my legs were also doing the same super slow motion. And so I wanted to come back to that. We were signed up for Tokyo. I didn't get a chance to go because of the pandemic. And so that goal is still uh, achievable and realistic. And it's, you know, and it, I know now I'm on a carousel that's not just spinning around in a circle. It's kind of elliptical. Like there's only a, a few times during the orbit of fitness and timing that I'll get to go run a race and be healthy and, you know, have a great day uh, and maximize my training and my um, potential. So that's still the goal, sort of a sub 240 marathon. That sounds fast to a lot of people, I think. And I know it's fast, uh, but, you know, I have the same same other challenges that other people have. I have to still go out and do things that let me know that I'm mentally capable and and uh, I've got to get support from my family. And, you know, it takes a lot of work and time. And so that's that's the goal still floating around. Besides that, you know, maybe just staying healthy and, you know, kind of keeping competitive keeping a spirit of, of the game of running still alive instead of just going out and trudging through the miles and, and letting it just get harder and harder. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned before that a, a core component of your burgeoning running wisdom is understanding your body a little bit better and what you need to do to either prevent injury or if injury is, uh, rearing its ugly head, uh, doing something about it to rehabilitate and using those strategies to move yourself forward. Can you share a little bit about um, how you think about injury, um, even sharing some experiences of some some challenges you might have had and how you kind of came back from them? Yeah, sure. I have had uh, in the last several years, a couple of pretty significant challenges. Um, one of the main things that I think a lot of uh, people my age and a lot of the people that we talk to about injuries, one of the things they encounter has not as much to do with where you think you're going to have trouble. A lot of people think knees, shins, ankles, feet, you know, the, the points of contact to the ground are, are, you know, in jeopardy of being sore. But a lot of people have kind of these core uh, gluteus issues, issues around their hips, issues around their body column that kind of get it tweaked. And over time, we learn how to compensate. And for me, 
I have like a little tiny leg length difference that wasn't a problem when I was 20 or 30 or 40. And now it just seems like if I get on a sidewalk that's slightly crooked or even look at a slant, you know, my left side does this weird thing and my hip gets kind of tweaked out. So I've had this sort of high hamstring, uh, forgive me if this sounds technical, but this kind of piriformis syndrome, nerve compression thing. And sometimes it feels like a hamstring. Sometimes it feels like a calf. And um, so I, I don't really like to stretch. Uh, I'm realistic about what I tell people. I mean, I think some people think, oh, you do core all day and you stretch and you run 50 miles a week and boy, you're great. And I'm like, no, I just, I stretch when I start getting sore. Uh, but I did find this thing called nerve flossing and it was a kind of a cool thing that I just do as a maintenance tool. I definitely do it when I start to feel this pain. And, and it's a thing you can do without being on the ground or getting in a pretzel position. And I do that a lot. Um, I do have some things I've started doing in my older age. Uh, my calves are getting weaker. And so I do some, some calf raises. My quads and my glutes are also losing some spring and some resiliency. So squats and lunges, things that are pretty easy and basic. Uh, and I don't have a really strict regimen, but I do do them just to try to keep some symmetry. Um, and my main goal is to try to keep myself moving forward with kind of efficiency on both sides of my body. I didn't used to think that way at all. And now I just know, you know, strength and balances are kind of what, what keep me going s straight and healthy. And so that's, yeah, that's what I do now. When you're talking to um, newer runners or walkers, people who are, uh, who are trying to get fit, who are uh, looking at new goals, do you generally recommend that they incorporate other types of exercise into their regimen, whether it be yoga, weight training, other types of calisthenics, basically things other than their primary uh, uh, activity? Yeah, we try to. I mean, you have to be with each person that I talk to and for myself as well. You have to be very realistic with your time. Uh, if you have kids or if you have a demanding job or family commitments or, or whatever, you can't set up a routine that you that's impossible to achieve. And so you have to prioritize. So if you only you want to run or walk and you only have time for 20 minutes, three days a week, it's not realistic to probably put a whole lot more on your plate. But if you start to encounter challenges for a lot of uh, people that I talk to, I would say if you're going to walk or run 20 minutes and you're also having these leftovers that you don't seem to recover from, we'll just take two or three minutes off of that run and walk and spend that time doing some things like the like these light lunges and light squats, um, something that helps you with strengthening. Um, I think that's super important. I, I know as adults that we think getting older is the only problem, but also just moving in a dynamic way stops happening. Uh, when I was younger, I coached my kids' soccer teams and, and volleyball, whatever we could find we did, and it kept me kind of mobile without without doing it on purpose. And so now I have to find ways to do that as well. So um, being active is great. Not getting hurt is super important, but trying to find something else to do. Uh, and then for calisthenics or sort of maintenance stuff, core strength, is everybody's weakness. So uh, there's easy, easy things that you can do at home with no equipment, like planking. Uh, planking is something that if you're not able to do it, um, you probably have, you're probably more in jeopardy of getting hurt than if you are able to plank. Uh, so there's, and, and obviously it's a podcast, so we can't show you what that looks like, but um, there's ways that you can look up on online, just at running maintenance exercises. And planking, I think, is a really important thing. Something to strengthen the core. Um, 
so yeah, we do. I definitely recommend other things uh, with the realistic assessment of like how much time you have. Uh, I know if you look at elite athletes, uh, they have massage a couple times a week. They have a nutritionist. They definitely have a routine that includes strengthening and flexibility that's not running related. And so if you want to trickle down from that, just like we would with every other sport we watch, then go to the elite athletes, try not to pay attention to how many miles a week they do or how fast they go, but just check out the other things they do and maybe set it up as a percentage. They run, you know, 10 hours a week and one hour a week, they spend other, you know, that time doing other things. Then that's how you do your life as well. If you run an hour a week, find 15 minutes a week to do some other stuff. I like that. But when I think about elite athletes or uh, high high performers, people like you, um, I think it's easy for a lot of us to just think these people are just different from me. They're genetically blessed. They're just in this other category. And therefore, I, I can't really relate to them because of their 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 gifts that maybe I don't have. But one of the things that I think we can really take away from high performers is how they think about their sport or just the approach that they take to their lives. Um, it's hard for so many of us to be motivated to get up and do that thing every day or every other day. And I know that you are a mere mortal as well who's been doing this for 40 years. And so what is it like for you at this stage to say, yeah, I got to lace on my shoes at 6 a.m. and do that run or get that workout in and fit it in with all the other crazy stuff that you do all day and, uh, and time with your family, et cetera. How do you stay motivated? Um, that is such a great question. I think that I, uh, I have a similarity to my wife and my daughter and my son. We have all done a lot of work to achieve a goal. And then we've seen the results of the work in a positive way. And that doesn't always mean we were successful at what we set out to do. It just means that we were able to frame what we did and what we tried to do and the result of that in a positive way. And I think that's what everybody has to do, whether you want to walk 20 minute miles for a 5k or whether you want to run six minute miles for a mile on the track. Um, you have to be able to do the work and you have to be able to make a connection between the work and the result. And over 40 years, that's something I can do pretty easily. I go out, you know, you, when you mentioned going out at 6 a.m., first of all, just full disclosure, I don't do that very often. Uh, but when I go out to do some hard work, if I go out to do some kind of specific workout, I'm not just doing the workout so that at the end of the workout, I can pat myself on the back. I'm doing it because I know that down the road somewhere, that work's going to lead to a different thing that I want to try to achieve, like a pace or a, a, you know, the goal, a distance. And I think that's where a lot of people find challenge. So I say the same thing about people I see running that are much, much faster and possibly more talented than I am. I'm like, that's not even the same sport. I mean, they just go out and it's so much easier. And that is definitely not the case. Um, and it wouldn't be to say that the work is identical. Uh, and in fact, I've talked to a lot of five-hour marathoners and I'm like, there's no way I could run for five hours. So you've already beat me. I, my tank is out at about three hours. And once I get to three hours, I'm pretty much done. And so 
five, six, seven hour marathoners have some skill and some dedication that I can barely fathom in terms of time commitment and uh, time on your legs. And I think it's just really important to find a positive outcome for the work. And that makes the work make sense. I've never heard anybody describe a five hour marathoner in that way. And I think that's such a cool uh, takeaway that uh, people who may run slower are running longer. And that is actually a skill unto itself. Um, one of my personal philosophies is that the road is the goal. And I really try to emphasize process and experience in my life uh, rather than necessarily always focusing on the success. But we all know that sometimes the goal is the goal. And I'm trying to imagine you on that marathon where you're eight seconds shy of your goal and you're watching those seconds tick. And I'm curious when you have an experience that is so close, but not the experience that you necessarily wanted, how does that make you view your training or, or just uh, that black box of the next training experience? How do you come back? That's just another really great question. I think that it, that would be like chapter two on sports psychology. Um, I don't personally find in my later years of running that the setbacks are quite as impactful as they used to be. And this thing, this just missing my goal thing, I mean, I have to measure out all of the different things that got me to there and including support from my family. I can't do that and then be sad about not getting my goal because my family would be like, what are you doing? We just spent six months with you <laughs> training hard, you know, and we're in London or wherever we are, you know. Um, so coming back from that is is interesting. I, I oftentimes get pretty analytical about what I might have left on the table, uh, what I could have done a little differently, maybe even during the race or some other day. But also, and this is a little more comprehensive fitness mind, is that I also think, gosh, you know, was I getting enough sleep? Was I eating <clears throat> properly? You know, was I drinking? Was I hydrated enough? Was I doing all the things that I would tell somebody to do? And usually I can say, nope, nope. There's a whole bunch of days in there where I was out, out too late or I was drinking, you know, a little bit of wine that I didn't need or I was dehydrated or I didn't spend time getting done with an exercise routine and stretching or whatever. I can usually find something. And that's what I usually dwell on when I'm when I miss the mark by a little bit. And I heard a great quote the other day from a guy who ran 213 at the Boston Marathon. He's a phenomenal runner. He just said, I just wasn't good enough today. And I thought that was an amazing thing to say. You don't have to say it's not your day. It's really never your day. You can say, you know, I wasn't good enough today. Um, maybe some other day. It'll be, it'll go better. Yeah, I think that that accepting that some days, not, none of us can be good enough every day. Um, I'd love to uh, shift a little bit. Uh, you're a runner, uh, you're a coach, you've been a teacher. And you also are an expert in how to uh, dress our feet and the rest of our bodies with respect to engaging in this uh, running and, and walking activity. And so for people who are getting started or, uh, or in enjoying themselves in their current activity, 
how do you recommend optimizing gear to make their experience as great as it can be? Well, we start with the obvious. The footwear that you choose is the thing between you and your, the surface you're running or walking on. And so we, there's a lot of things that people can make uh, the decision on on their own. You can decide your own jacket, your weather protection, your hat, uh, your, even your socks. Uh, when it comes to your feet, you can't see everything that's going on. And also a lot of people don't know the connection between what's going on with your feet and how it might lead to success or you know, injuries or, or, or setbacks. Um, so there's a couple of things we really like to try to do for every single person, whether we're talking to them on the phone or, or watching them in person. And that is you have to get familiar with the function of footwear, what a shoe is supposed to do for you and your own form or your own, um, you know, tendencies as a runner or walker. There's a very easy way to do that. It's called the gait assessment. It's done in person. So if you're listening, you should type in gait assessment somewhere nearby you, wherever you are in the world and, and find an expert that can watch you run or walk. Uh, and the, the deal there is we watch points of contact, what your foot does when it strikes the ground or the track or the treadmill, what you do in what we call mid stance, which is when you're not putting a lot of weight on your body, but you're in the middle of your foot strike. Uh, that's where a lot of people's arches come into play, arches and Achilles. Um, flatten and tend to do things that are kind of crazy. And then the propulsion or the toe off phase. And for us, we watch that like hawks because we want to see what your feet are doing um, in relationship to your big toe. Because when, if you just stand up right now and look down at your feet and then flatten your arch and move your ankle around without pulling your foot off the ground, you'll see your lower leg twist around. You'll see your knee change angles. You might even feel your hip change position. So that, that quick thing, that gait assessment tells us a couple things. It tells us what your feet do, but it also tells us what the rest of your body might do when you get tired or when you're running or walking. And then believe it or not, out of the hundreds of shoes that might be out there for runners and walkers, there might be three for you. There might be 30, but there might also only be like three great shoes. And the job there is for us to figure out what shoe feels great to a person and also what you might also help us see some correction or some efficiency enhancement. Uh, it's a really important part of running and walking, and it's something that we'd love everybody to do, whether you're an experienced runner or walker, whether you're just starting off. Um, side note is also if you're a beginner and you're thinking, I'm going to wait to see if this activity takes, that's really the most important time to get uh, new shoes or the right shoes. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to go skydiving and I just want a beginner parachute. You know, you're, you're in jeopardy of injury the most when you're starting off. So it's the best time to just declare that you're a runner or walker, uh, see somebody who can help you uh, evaluate your gait and then get the right shoe. So for a lot of people, uh, budget is an understandable concern when thinking about a shoe. You can buy shoes for probably you know, 30, 40 bucks or for 300 bucks. And so when people are seeing that kind of intimidating inflection in price point uh, at the store, um, what are people getting when they're getting more expensive shoes, generally speaking? Um, well, first of all, there's a pretty good price point threshold and, and there's an above and below the price point where things start to happen. And it's about $130. So $130 US dollars is kind of a place where most companies put their marquee shoes that are, are versatile enough to help, you know be appropriate for most people's feet and aren't endowed with a bunch of things that you don't need. Uh, when you go below that price point, you start to get 
uh, inferior foam uh, properties. So the stuff inside your shoe, it's called the midsole. Those foams start to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And eventually you get foams that might feel great out of the box that break down quickly. So you lose durability or you get foams that become uh, flexible quickly and then you lose stability. So those two things, durability and stability, you lose that very quickly. And um, if you go above that, you get technologies that you may not benefit from. Uh, cushioning technologies in particular tend to be things that are stuck in shoes that are higher price, 150 or 60 or $70. And you do get increased probably durability. You get increased performance, uh, although that is debatable because not everybody can perceive increased performance the same way. So we think $130 is a great place where you can find a lot of shoes. It might fluctuate by $10 in either direction. Uh, if you're on a budget, then we recommend that if you can figure out what the appropriate shoe would be, you know, for sure, look for a sales shoe. Look for that suggested retail at 130 but maybe it's on sale for, you know, 109 or 99 or even $89. But I would watch out for shoes below $100 because you're going to lose something that we think is important. Uh, and usually it's something to do with uh, durability and, and uh, stability. About how often should I be replacing my shoes? How often is implies that it's a time limit and uh, we like to do it in terms of miles. And so a lot of people are using apps now where you can track your mileage and we recommend doing that. And in mileage, we would say it's pretty appropriate to get 300 miles minimum. That would be if you're in the right shoe and about 400 miles for the maximum. You can stretch it out to 500. Um, we think those last miles in a shoe are the times, again, when people seem to get the most banged up. So you'll see uh, increased recovery times as your shoes start to get older and uh, maybe a lack of just pop or zip. You know, you get in your shoes and they feel great at first and then they start to just kind of lose some of that resiliency. It actually makes me uh, uh, wonder a little bit about how you think about shoes in terms of treadmills uh, versus road versus trail. Um, you know, like you, I live uh, here in Oregon and we're known for our moisture at certain times of the year, like almost all the year. And one year I trained for a marathon on a treadmill. I just, I just was over it being outside in the rain and I was doing 20 mile runs on a Saturday, watching a movie on a treadmill. And it was sort of miserable for some obvious reasons, but I was thinking a lot about shoes and gear in that setting. And so I'm curious for some of our listeners around the country who I hope are not training for marathons on treadmills for their sanity. What do you recommend about uh, shoes for folks who are going to be inside more? Um, the recommendations doesn't, it doesn't change that much. Uh, a treadmill does add a certain amount of, um, consistency to the foot strike and generally treadmills also offer a little bit of cushion. So you can be more versatile with your shoe selection. If you're going to train exclusively on a treadmill, this crosses over for people who might do this program or also do like orange theory where you're being a little more dynamic. You're not going to worry so much about the wear and tear on the outsole of the shoe or the midsole uh, because you're going to have a little less uh, friction and a little less impact when you're on a treadmill specifically. But we don't change much about the function of the shoe. We still think that the function is really the main thing um, to watch out for. So if you are training exclusively indoors or on a treadmill for whatever reason, 
um, I think that you still get the same shoe, but you have a, a little wider berth for uh, the appropriate shoe. You might have an opportunity to get a slightly lighter shoe or a, a less substantial shoe that might feel a little bit better on the treadmill, but maybe too thin on, on pavement. And also, if you are running on the treadmill a long time, I recommend the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's a great, uh, great, way to, <laughs> great way to make three hours pass. Right. Um, hey, whatever happened to barefoot running? So I'm sure you remember uh, some years back, there was that uh, book, Born to Run, that uh, uh, seemed to regale the benefits of uh, running on the trail and your bare feet. And we saw a lot of shoes with minimalist uh, soles. And it seems like we've gone the other direction these days or, or in a different direction. And curious what your thoughts were about that whole movement. Yeah, the, the um, philosophy of Born to Run is something that's pretty fundamental in, uh, in gate circles, like efficiency circles and biomechanics. And the idea was that running barefoot gave you a more natural mechanic and led to a more, a healthier, possibly more holistic experience when you run specifically. And let's just talk just about running because this never really took the walking um, category by storm. And the idea was that going barefoot made you strike in your midfoot, made you more efficient. And, uh, and then maybe also the philosophy connected you to the planet a little more, it took you away from the bad tendencies of the, hyper-industrial production of shoes. And I think the issue was that it's a philosophy. It's not a, it's not a one-way ticket to success. And so what we saw was a lot of people embrace barefoot running or the idea of it with not enough direction or not enough kind of a sense and they became injured. Uh, there was very, uh, lots of tendencies to get banged up when you tried this. And so when those shoe companies were doing that sort of minimal shoe approach, we were busy saying, uh, something like this. Listen, you can be very connected to nature and go camping, but you still want to bring a lighter. You do not have to abandon all technology. And so what we've seen now, it might look from the outside like we've rejected uh, minimal shoes, but we haven't. We've learned a lot from it. Uh, one of the things that's very different now is the height of the heel of a shoe. Uh, they used to be about 12 millimeters taller in the back. Uh, barefoot running was zero, so it was the same in the front and back. And now we see a variety from zero all the way to 12. And so we've learned that there are different heights of midsoles and different shapes of shoes that can be more efficient than the traditional shoe uh, that everybody was sort of um, trying to reject 15 years ago. Um, so barefoot running is gone, I think, because the philosophy wasn't very pragmatic. It's not comfortable to run on your bare feet. Uh, even what we call zero drop minimal shoes aren't super comfortable. They're not fun to run in. And I think that most people want to have like a little fun. You mentioned the journey earlier. You don't want the journey to be about every single step. <laughs> you kind of want it to be about where you're heading and what you're seeing and, and how much you can enjoy it. And I think that's where we've seen a sort of rebuttal to minimalism or barefoot running, but also there's still, you know, philosophical ideas that, that go along with what happened back then and being natural in your mechanic and finding a good um, kind of compromise between hyper over-engineered shoes and shoes that make you feel good when you run or walk. That's kind of what we, that's the product of what happened. Um, before we wrap up, I would love to get your perspective on uh, the other types of gear that we should be thinking about. You know, hopefully people are able to uh, find safe spaces to enjoy the outdoors as part of their walking and running experience. 
And so uh, sometimes that means being in the rain. Sometimes that means uh, being in the dark. And uh, if you were to kind of package what are the important things for people to be thinking about when they engage with uh, the weather and uh, the planet. What are some uh, good thoughts? <laughs> That's great. Um, we always say there's no bad weather, just bad clothes. And I think what we mean by that is if you build from the base of your skin out to the outside, uh, there's a few great rules to stick with in terms of clothes. You want to watch out for cotton. Cotton tends to load with moisture and get abrasive when it gets wet. It also doesn't have great thermal properties. So when it gets wet, it gets cold. Uh, so finding kind of polyester, synthetic, or natural fibers like wool uh, as your base layer, that's a great place to start. Um, as you build out towards those layers that tackle weather more uh, specifically like a rain jacket, you want to make sure that you think about weather as about 20 degrees warmer than it actually is. So that when you get out and you start doing some work, you're not overdressed. Uh, so lightweight rain jackets, you don't have to get waterproof unless you're just set against getting wet. Uh, there's a lot of technical jackets that will take care of wind and rain and keep you comfortable for 45 minutes or an hour, even two hours, but that are also lightweight enough to not let, you know, not force you to overheat. Um, going up to the head, I would say you've got to get a build hat and you have to get a beanie. Those are the two things in the headwear that you need to have. One is the build hat helps you with rain and inclement weather. Um, for most people, that's enough to keep the head insulated and a beanie just because it's cold in a lot of places. And uh, beanies, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it just looks like a you know mini ski cap. And you put that thing on, it covers your ears. It's great. It takes care of the hair for a lot of people as well. And then from a safety standpoint, it's transitional lighting now. We're getting into some crazy times, uh, especially in the kind of northern states where it feels like it's dark, starting like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So getting some bright clothing, that kind of screen green, um, you know, crossing color sign apparel. It kind of looks hyper-technical, but it's really, really appropriate for catching drivers' eyes and, and other uh, cyclists and runners. So we always recommend a little bit of bright clothing anywhere on your body, even if it's just your gloves, uh, you know, socks, something that's moving that, that will help you. And then, of course, reflectivity. Um, that's also a really important part. And lastly, you want to see things and be seen. So be seen wearing your reflective stuff or bright colored things. We also recommend uh, um, headlamps. I think a headlamp is a really cool thing to add in. If you're always in a lit area, like on a sidewalk and it's lit, maybe not a headlamp, but anyway, even a flashlight you carry that just adds a layer of visibility and also allows you to um, see things that, that you may not otherwise see if it's dark outside. That is awesome advice. Thank you so much. Your journey is uh, super interesting to me and I can see why, uh, why you're a great coach and uh, that uh, you've been just, I don't know, kind of a, a, a fixture and role model in the Portland running community for so long. So we're so thrilled to have you uh, here today. And thanks so much for your time. It is 100% my pleasure. I, I'm very happy about the whole sport of running and walking. And I can't wait to see everybody out there on the roads. Thanks so much for joining us today on Heart to Start. We look forward to continuing this conversation to help you stay motivated and healthy throughout these 12 weeks. So let's get to the activity plan for the upcoming week. Remember, we welcome all movement styles with an emphasis on providing a training plan for walking or running a 5K. So this is interval training to help build a safe and sustainable base over the next 12 weeks. 
and it works for walking or running. So remember, when we reference a fast pace, we're looking for a brisk pace, but one where you can still carry on a conversation. The slow pace is literally that. Just slow down a little bit for a quick recovery between the fast pace intervals. So let's set your plan for the week. Remember, you gotta write it down. Schedule some time in your calendar for your preferred mode of movement, at least three days each week, and then let's take one day to slow it down a little bit and take a nice walk. If you're following our 5K training plan for walking or running, here's the details for week two. One day of a 20 minute moderately paced walk and three days of the following intervals repeated five times. First, you'll do your five minute warm up. We don't have to repeat that. And then we'll do one minute and 30 seconds of a faster pace followed by two minutes of a slower pace, repeating that five times. Don't forget a nice cool down and some post-exercise stretching when you're done.